Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom and this episode we're firmly in classic fighting fantasy territory with Masks of Mayhem. We've got swords, we've got leather armour, we've got potions to restore stats and of course we've got my beloved provisions. Now, much as I enjoy a chance to see what the fighting fantasy system can do, I do also appreciate a writer going truly old school. The writer in this case is Robin Waterfield, who had previously written the generally enjoyable science fiction romp Rebel Planet. This time, he's taking us on a journey to Cool, the second continent in the fighting fantasy world of Titan, which we've also visited in Sword of the Samurai. This is a book that came out in 1985, just as the geography of the world of Titan was really beginning to get nailed down. So it's created at a very exciting time for the wider fighting fantasy universe. Now, this is not one I played as a child, so I know nothing about it. I'm very much looking forward to finding out how it all plays. Another returning creative for this book is legendary British artist Ross Nicholson. He illustrated the very first fighting fantasy book and he makes an extremely welcome return to action here. His playfully grotesque fantasy art enlivens almost any project he's attached to and I'm hoping this one will be no different. The cover art showing a horrible stone monster wearing... What I take to be one of the titular masks, that's great as well, and that's by John Civic. Before we dive in, I do have two bits of patron-related business to attend to. The first is to thank no less than three new patrons. Spencer, Charlie, Dave, thank you so much for supporting my nonsense. You helped to make this podcast possible, you helped to make the regular bonus episodes possible, and your support is deeply appreciated. Now, all my patrons receive a copy of my adventure game book, House of the Unquiet Dead, along with my undying gratitude. And that brings me on to my second bit of patron news. I've completed a new patron reward, which I've sent out to people this afternoon. It's a complete role-playing game called Dungeon and Daggers. And it's a retro hack of Dungeons and Dragons, based on John Harper's excellent Lasers and Feelings game. Dungeon and Daggers takes the elegant central mechanic of Lasers and Feelings and applies it to old-school D&D to create a fast-paced and brutally arbitrary and quite silly game. You can use it to run most old-school scenarios, I would say, with a minimum of tinkering. And it's also very much my critique of Dungeons & Dragons, a system I both love and hate with a passion. So that makes two great reasons to give me as little as a pound per month to support this podcast. All patrons get everything gaming related that I produce as a thank you. I've got even more projects in development as we speak, including a short adventure for Dungeons & Daggers and... My ongoing development of Saturday Morning Superstars, a game devoted to Saturday morning adventure cartoons. Patreon.com forward slash HJDoom is the place to go. If you are a patron, check your email. You should have a role-playing game from me. There's one uh, bit of other podcast business. I continue to be struggling quite badly with my health. I've got a nasty herniated disc that's going to require surgical intervention. So 
it's made it a lot more difficult to record. I'm on quite a lot of painkillers. I've also had a death in the family. So I'm trying to put as much energy as I can into this recording, but the situation I'm in is not 100%. So if I am a little bit subdued, I hope you will bear with me a little bit. I'm hoping to get my back sorted very soon and be back on top of my game before too long. So without any further ado, let's attach some mayhem to our faces with bits of string as we delve into masks of mayhem. So I have created a character. I have called them the extremely heroic Bloat Gromithunk. This is as old school as Fighting Fantasy gets. It's the same system that was used in the very first Fighting Fantasy gamebook. So we have skill, stamina and luck. We have 10 provisions and we have a potion either of skill, stamina or luck. Bloat Gromithunk has a skill of 11, a stamina of 22 and a luck of 12. I have chosen the potion of luck as their signature potion because I always worry excessively, I think, about running out of luck. Oh, it's very nice not to have to explain a whole bunch of secondary systems at the top of one of these. We can just pretty much jump straight into the action. So that's what we will do. You are the just and noble ruler of Arion in northeast Cool. Your people prosper and the land flourishes, but trouble is brewing. One day your court wizard, Efor Tynin, summons you. Though you are the ruler, he is your equal because of his knowledge of sorcery. Each of you relies on the other for the governing of the land, but you can never quite overcome a suspicion of anyone involved in the sorcerous arts. To be fair, whenever I'm role-playing, my natural place to go is either a kind of barbarian type or a rogue type. I don't generally play spellcasters. I think because I just read a lot of Conan stories as a child and developed into a bit of a Robert E. Howard obsessive as an adult. So, yeah, I generally tend to come down on the uh, swords end of the sword and sorcery genre. E4 Tynan comes straight to the point. You have heard, of course, of Morgana, the sorceress whose abode is the five peaks of Krilganach in the northern mountains. I have travelled in my astral body to her lair to watch over her evil designs. This is how I assume all wizards talk. There are twelve forms, the sigils, which hold the keys of power over all things. This has long been known to those who pursue the righteous side of my ancient art, and without this knowledge we would be unable to assist the thriving of the world. Morgana has acquired this knowledge, though the Council of Elders bans such as her from it. The way these sentences are structured, I have chosen exactly the right voice for him. She has made masks of eleven of the sigils and fitted them on undead golems, creatures of stone. She lacks only the twelfth, which binds the others together and makes them effective. Then power over all creation will be hers to do what she will and she will unleash her golems over all the world. They will be irresistible, because they will be the essence 
of all things and nothing can resist its essence. She plans to create havoc with her undead creatures, and has imbued the masks with the power of mayhem, which awaits only the twelfth to be made actual. So, very much in sub-Lord of the Rings territory here, I can't help but feel. I wonder if um, J.R.R. Tolkien ever dallied with the idea of Sauron handing out funny masks instead of rings. I don't think the ringwraiths would have been quite so ominous if they'd been obliged to wear clown masks. Or maybe they would. Maybe they would. Some people hate clowns. You must slay Morgana. You are the noblest ruler and the boldest fighter of the land. Only you can succeed. You interrupt. But why can't your council do something about her? His reply is grim. Because in a magical battle the forces that would be released may cause almost as much damage as the full set of twelve golems. Only one, such as yourself, armed with the purity of purpose, is impervious to most of our magical arts, whether good or evil. Yes, it must be you for our plan to succeed. Is this just a cunning ruse to usurp the throne? I feel like it might be a cunning ruse to usurp the throne. But I guess we have to take him at his word because, I mean, I guess you could write an adventure where you sulk at home in a state of advanced paranoia, but I suspect this is not that adventure. His words have filled you with dread and eagerness. Your preparations are swift and you depart early the next morning. So there's our beginning. Before setting off, you enter the armoury. Kevin Truehand, your trusted but now aged armourer, has been honing your sword and burnishing your helmet with its strangely simple device. This helmet has been handed down from generation to generation of the rulers of Arion. And legend has it, were it to fall into the wrong hands, chaos would stalk the streets of your city. So the design on the helmet, because there is a lovely, uh, typically evocative Russ Nicholson picture of a balding fellow with a craggy face holding up a helmet in his gnarled hands. And the helmet does a very simple design. It is a hexagon, just a straight up hexagon. So whether that will turn out to be important or not, who can say? But uh, that is the simple design. As you put on the helmet and buckle your sword to your belt, True Hand whispers to you as if afraid someone might hear. A Majesty, seek first the castle of Heaver, Lord of Fallowdale, for you are bound for Krill Garnash, where evil dwells and Heaver has a horn, which strikes terror into any evil heart. Therefore I say, seek the halls of Heaver, and win from him however you can this precious horn. With that he turns aside, and you set out through the paved streets of Arion, and out of the northern gateway, the Gate of Skulls. Are we sure I'm a wise, good and just ruler? I feel like the Gate of Skulls is uh, unnecessarily sinister. Imagine going through the Channel Tunnel and coming out the other end and seeing at the station in Calais just a gate called the Gate of Skulls. It would really put you off visiting, I can't help but feel. So whatever else Arion might have, I'm guessing a thriving tourist industry is not part of it. Truehand's advice seems sound. Not far north of Arion is the vast Lake Necros. Just north of the lake lies Fallow Dale. From there you could head north and slightly east over Pikestaff Plain, leaving Marsh Vile to the west and through the foothills and mountains 
until you came to kill Garnish itself, with its five ice-capped peaks lost in the clouds. I should say there is a map on the inside cover, full-colour map, which seems to indicate that the journey from Arion to Krill Garnash is more or less a straight line. After a few days of easy travel, with springs and game so plentiful that you still have all your original provisions, you reach the southern shore of Lake Necros, and the end of civilization as you know it. Beyond this, the ways are unknown to the people of Arion. Within memory, Lake Necros has never been crossed. People speak of unfathomable depths, spawning hideous monsters and of strange and mysterious winds and currents which turn the chill, still waters into whirlpools and ungovernable waves. Nevertheless, your most direct route is across it. Will you, bold hero that you are, build a raft and embark across the lake? Or strike out around its eastern edge through rolling hills, or around its western edge through Affen Forest? Well, it could just be folk tales, I guess, about the unfathomable depths and the monsters and the whirlpools and the ungovernable waves. But I don't really fancy taking my chances. Rolling hills are kind of dull. I prefer forests. So I think I'm going to go through Affen Forest because it just sounds like the most interesting of the options. Before long, you reach the first trees. As you walk through the forest, keeping the lake in sight on your right hand, the evergreen trees get older and taller. Their branches form a dark canopy above your head, through which only the occasional beam of sunlight breaks. Even these welcome shafts die out as you continue northwards on the first leg of your hazardous journey, but only because night is beginning to fall. Will you camp here by the lakeside, or carry on through the deepening dusk? I guess I will camp. Don't fancy a turned ankle. Um, it strikes me as a asking for trouble, walking through a forest in the dark. There is plenty of dry wood around to start a fire with your flint and tinder, and soon you have a merry blaze going. You chew on some nuts and drink some water from your flask. Do you want to refill your flask with water from the lake or settle down to sleep straight away? The game designer in me says that this is far too early to be dying of thirst in the adventure. Usually running out of water is something you keep for a bit later to, to heighten the tension of an already dangerous section. So I feel like filling my flask with water from the lake is a trap. Having said that, sometimes you find interesting things when you say yes to prompts. On the other, other hand, just below this section, this short section, there's one of those little sort of mini illustrations that kind of just breaks up the text a little bit. And it's of a monster's head popping out of a pool of water. I'm assuming it's just coincidence, but maybe it's a clue. Not a very subtle clue that this is a, a bad idea. Now I'm going to go and look at the lake. I'm going to go and look at the lake. You lie down on the bank and dip your flask into the water of a small inlet. All seems fine at first, but when you next come to drink from your flask, you will find that the foul lake water has rotted it and made it useless. Until you find another flask, your provisions will restore only three points of stamina instead of the usual four. You settle down to sleep in blissful ignorance of your misfortune. That's really cool on one level. Um, I mean, it's bad news on another level, because I was thinking that I'd probably just brought ten family-sized packs of salt and vinegar crisps, which you do really need a bit of water or something, or fizzy pop, to uh, to wash those those bad boys down. So maybe I have to rethink 
my mental model of my provisions because I feel as though salt and vinegar crisps would only hasten inevitable death by dehydration. But it's a really, really neat touch. And one of the issues with the classic fighting fantasy approach is that the provisions kind of make it very, very hard to die at all in many of the books. So making the provisions a little less good just based on a decision I've made, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Bizarrely, I'm genuinely pleased my provisions are now significantly worse because it's a fun little bit of game design. You sleep as deeply as if you had no cares in the world, but in the small hours of the morning something disturbs the quiet surface of the lake. Test your luck. So there is a picture, which I assume is for this uh, paragraph, which shows a nice view of a night sky with the embers of a fire and some tentacles coming out of a dark body of water. This really is very Lord of the Rings. So anyway, first luck test. Three and a four, seven, that's fine. I've got luck's 12 anyway, so um, yeah. So we are lucky. Your dreams abruptly change and you suddenly wake up crying, Kevin, no! Only to find something more horrible than your worst nightmare. My worst nightmare apparently involves my loyal armourer. That's uh, slightly concerning. The slimy tentacles of a kraken are reaching out of the lake towards you. You repulse the nearest one with a brand snatched from the fire. This gives you time either to run or to seize your sword to face the kraken. I'm guessing if I run, I don't get to have my sword. So I guess I need to fight the kraken if I want to keep my sword. Which is kind of cool again because... Kraken's not known for carrying vast quantities of loot with them, so my natural instinct would be to run, because, I mean, I suppose I could eat Kraken tentacles as some sort of giant calamari. But, yeah, I think the risk of losing my sword at this incredibly early stage is far too great, so let's face the Kraken. Good job, we didn't take that raft, that's all I can say. Although maybe the Kraken is strictly nocturnal. The kraken's ghastly head with its huge beaked mouth snapping appears out of the water behind the tentacles. But it is obviously afraid of the fire, and it stays well out of reach. You'll have to deal with its tentacles rather than going for a killing stroke to the beast itself. Do you want to fight the tentacles with sword alone, or try and snatch burning branches from the fire to use in combination with your sword? Well, I think it's option B, isn't it? With your back to a tree... On the campfire in front of you, you may fight the tentacles one at a time. Before you fight each tentacle, you reach for a flaming brand from the fire, uh, which means we roll one die. On a one or a two, we merely burn ourselves. On a three or a four, it just splutters and dies before you have a chance to use it. On a five or a six, you succeed in getting hold of a securely flaming brand, and every time you win an attack round, you inflict three rather than the usual two stamina points of injury. There are five tentacles, all with the same skill of six and stamina of six. I can try and escape, although I will lose two points of stamina. I mean, it's not going to have any treasure, I don't think. The battle runs for ten rounds, minimum. So that would mean, on average, I'm going to take three points of damage just from cack-handedly trying to pick up burning brands from the hot end plus any damage that the Kraken inflicts on me. And that's a minimum of 10 rounds. 
I think I'm going to try and escape. I'm just going to take the two stamina damage and try and escape. My chances of actually getting anything worthwhile from this encounter seem to me very, very low. So yeah, I'm going to say discretion is the better part of valour. I had to think about it. I really had to think about it. That's some good encounter design. In your haste, you drop some provisions out of your pack. Roll one die, you lose this many portions of provisions. Haha, <laughs> one. So, in my haste to flee, I leave a uh, beef wellington lying on the uh, the grass behind me. The moon sets and you wander in the pitch-dark forest, no longer certain of the direction, until a slight lightening of the gloom and the mist rolling in from the lake herald dawn. Lose one stamina point for your lack of sleep. Do you want to slump down against a tree to rest or press on? I think I will have a little rest. Stamina now down to 19. Reduce your stamina points by 2 if you've not eaten during the night, which I have not, so... Oh, no, no, I ate some nuts, didn't I? I ate some nuts, that's fine. When you resume your interrupted journey, wisps of mist are still drifting between the trunks of the tall evergreen trees, and... What was that? Was it just a patch of mist at the edge of your vision? Was it some living creature? An arrow thudding into the tree trunk centimetres from your head soon answers these questions. You want to remain motionless or duck down into the undergrowth? There is a picture on the facing page and my heart sinks as I see some skinny looking humanoids poking out from behind the trees with pointy ears. Looks like there be elves in this here forest, which is... Oh, am I just going to be patronised rigid by some elves? Um, I guess I should remain motionless. I feel like if they were going to actually shoot at me, they'd have hit me. So I don't think ducking down in the undergrowth is going to help. I'm not even sure what direction they're shooting from, to be honest. So I could just duck down and expose my ample behind to their arrows. So anyway, we'll remain motionless. Six wood elves step up to you with a mixture of curiosity and caution, and then politely but firmly lead you away. Will you make a break for it, or let yourself be taken wherever you are going? I have to confess that if they take me prisoner, I'm sort of hoping I can do the whole hobbit escaping on the back of barrels thing, so I'm going to let myself be taken by these haughty elves. The wood elves eventually stop in an empty clearing, speaking some words in an arcane liquid language, and immediately their village is visible in the clearing. Of course, wood elves' villages are often protected by magic. You are taken to the largest hut, which is set well apart from the others at the far end of the village. Inside, the chief elf and his shaman are gazing seriously into a crystal mirror and muttering darkly to each other. They look up. When you enter, an astonishment spreads over their faces. So there is a picture of the wood elf leader. He looks a lot like you would expect with his jerkin, his van braces of leather, and an expression of smug superiority. The shaman is much more exciting, covered in sort of feathers with a, a pouch, bag hanging off his shoulder, much more gnarled with a beard. You don't very often see bearded elves. I like to see a bearded elf now and then. And he too has an expression of more careworn smug superiority, I would say. It's a, it's a fantastic and characterful illustration. Russ Nicholson is great. So they look up when you enter and astonishment spreads over their faces. They dismiss your guards and then the chief 
addresses you. Stranger, he says, what is it that you want? What are you doing here? You tell them of your quest, make up some other reason for being in the forest, or try and look in the mirror. Mirrors in the back of the illustration, teasing me with its crystal opacity. Uh, but I'm going to tell them of my quest on the grounds that I can't imagine golems in clown masks are any better news for elves than it is for me. We have seen something of this in the mirror, says the chief when you've finished explaining about your quest. Are your hands tied? No, they are not. You may ask us one question to aid you in your quest, says the chief. So we can ask about Galrin. I've no idea who Galrin is. Ask them what they've seen in the mirror or for free passage through the forest. I think they're going to give me free passage anyway. I've no idea who Galrin is. I will ask them what they've seen in the mirror. Take a look for yourself, says the chief and hands you the mirror. At first, when you look into it, it is cloudy. But presently, a brief image of startling clarity and potency emerges. You see yourself standing between two majestic oaks. Your arms are raised in the air, and each hand is holding an object. But the image is instantaneous, and you have time only to see that one of the objects is long before the mirror returns to its cloudy state. Still, there is no doubt that you will remember this if you ever find yourself in such a spot. So add one luck point. Luck now back to twelve. You hand the mirror back to the chief. He and the shaman smile at you knowingly. There is more that we have seen, says the shaman. But to tell you would deprive you of the free choice, which is what determines a hero. There are riddles for the hearing and the signs for the seeing, and dangers at every turn. The true path is narrow, but you must now continue your quest elsewhere. He mutters a spell, and the village begins to dissolve, and you feel yourself floating. You find yourself among mist-shrouded hills. The position of the sun dimly perceived behind the mist tells you that you have been transported to the eastern side of the lake, well away from the elves' forest. Would you stay where you are until the mist clears, or press on regardless? So I'm going to stay where I am until the mist clears. This is doing a great job of making every decision feel consequential. The chill mist seeps into your bones. You slap yourself and jump up and down to keep warm, but you still lose two stamina points. Stamina now down to 17. As the mist begins to clear, you can see buildings in the shallow valley below you. You duck down behind a stone. When you dare to peek around the stone, you find that the buildings are, in fact, the dilapidated remains of a mine of some kind. They are obviously uninhabited, at any rate by their former inhabitants. Will you have a look around or skirt the area? So there's a nice illustration of the mine workings. Uh, very dilapidated indeed, but uh, shown in a valley with hills rising up the other side and hints of mist it's uh yeah it's nice it's really nice i can't resist looking around cannot resist at all will you investigate the main shaft the outhouse whose roof has collapsed or the hut which looks fairly intact let's have a look at the hut who has remained fairly intact it takes your eyes a few moments to adjust to the gloom after the bright sunshine outside then you see that, although the ceiling is festooned with cobwebs, the floor is fairly free of dust. 
There is a table with a wooden bowl and spoon on it, and a crudely made stool tucked underneath. Do you want to leave before the occupant of the hut appears, or look around? I'm going to look around. No guarantee that the occupant will be horrible. When you move further into the hut, a shape detaches itself from the deep shadows of one of the corners and shuffles towards you. At that moment, a beam of light which is pouring through a small hole in the roof illuminates your helmet. Immediately, the shape stops its shuffling, and you can now see that it is a human hermit or beggar of some kind. He appears to be fascinated by your helmet. Not for the first time. The next instant, the hermit drops to the floor and grovels at your feet like an abject servant before a master or mistress. And they told me, he whimpers, half in ecstasy, half in fear, and they told me you would come. This is a bit alarming. Who told you, you ask? The voices, the voices, is all the reply you get. A poor man is obviously crazy. Do you want to leave before the owners of the voices find you there? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I assume the voices were all in his head. But I suppose in a fantasy world, that's not necessarily a guarantee. Or do you want to question the hermit further? I'd like to question the hermit further. He seems to know a thing or two. Also, cross old man, comma, mad from your fighting fantasy bingo card, if you have one handy. Not sure why. Fighting fantasy loves an old man quite so much, but, but they really do. You can get nothing more out of him, but while you question him, he sidles off to the side of the room and, cringing, bring back a bundle of rags which he offers to you. When you unwrap them, you discover a magnificent sceptre. It is made only of iron, but clearly of great age and has an aura of regal authority. You want to ask the old man about it, but he has collapsed unconscious on the floor. As you are stowing the sceptre safely in your pack, you notice that it is inscribed with runes, which translate as, There should be just one ruler. And then you leave. Ah, oh, great, I found a fascist stick. Why do no fantasy novels ever start from the basis of an anarchist commune? That's what I want to know. Look, I've got nothing against, you know, the odd hereditary monarch but it does always seem to be the default and I feel like there's other potentially more exciting social structures you could have fun exploring in a fantasy world rather than just rehashing tired power inequalities but you know that just seems to be the case everyone loves a hereditary monarch in fantasy worlds will you investigate the main shaft or the collapsed hut or leave the area altogether I like a mine, I do, I do. The collapsed hut is calling out to me, but I'm going to go and investigate the main shaft. When you peer down the shaft, you can see a series of wooden rungs set into the smooth stone side, disappearing into darkness. A stale smell from the depths of the mine assails your nostrils. Will you go down or not? Uh, if not, you can leave the area, or you can trust the ladder, or if you've got a rope, which I don't, you can attach it to a sturdy-looking beam and let yourself down. Well, in for a penny, in for a pound, I will go down the ladder. The rungs of the ladder remain secure for quite a way down. By this time, you can hear dripping below you and the dank smell is strong, so you must be getting close to the bottom. But the increased dampness you find has rotted the rungs and they get more and more wobbly, then end altogether. You look down and you can see the bottom, but you can't judge exactly how far it is and the shaft is too wide for you to chimney out again. 
So once you're down, there'll be no exit unless you can find one in the mine itself. Will you climb back out or let yourself go into space? Letting myself go into space without a rope. I feel like that is a very, very foolish decision. I will try and climb out. Yeah, I've suddenly got cold feet about this whole mine exploration business. On emerging, you see a number of horsemen lining the ridge to the south. You decide not to linger in the area. So, like, mines, now riders. I wonder if they're in black. Like, it might just be that, like, everything is in hock to J.R.R. Tolkien. But it does feel as though there's quite a lot of stuff that sort of reminds me of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, in a way. You set your course by the sun for Fallow Dale. Do you have two or fewer lots of provisions left? I have loads of provisions. The remainder of the journey to Fallow Dale is uneventful, apart from the occasional skirmish with a wild beast. As you descend into Fallow Dale, you recall what you know about the place. Several villages are located there, and the population is a mixture of human and other intelligent species. The villages are bound into a loose federation under a single overlord who occupies a fortified castle in the middle of the dale. Haver is the present lord of Fallow Dale, and his proud boast is that the fortifications of his castle are purely for external enemies. His villages live at peace with one another and with him. Apart from this, you have little reliable knowledge. The people of Arion never travel far away from their familiar world, and certainly not as far as Fallowdale. Few traders have even passed from Haver's land to yours. You can see the castle a few kilometres away. Your route could take you through a village, or you could bypass the village by crossing a large ploughed field. Let's go to the village. I'm sure these simple rustic folk will be delighted to see a heavily armed posho rocking up into their neck of the woods. There are few people out in the street. An old woman weaving baskets outside her front door eyes you curiously, and the blacksmith, a hulking man with at least a few pints of troll blood in his veins, stops working while you pass. Will you go to the village inn, or are you so badly hurt and wounded that you need to ask the blacksmith for the way to the local healer? I'm fine. Absolutely fine. Well, I guess I could eat some provisions. Yeah, maybe I will. I'll eat a double-decker. Mmm, chewy and crunchy. That restores three points of stamina, taking me back up to 20. And we can go straight onto the inn, where all good adventures start. So for one gold piece, which I do not have, you can buy food and drink that will restore two stamina points. So their full meal is less good than my novelty chocolate bar. But yeah, I can do that, but then I just have to leave. So not particularly exciting as villages go, which, to be fair, is a very accurate depiction of village life. Will you continue along the road or try and cross the ploughed field you saw earlier? Well, I'll continue along the road. A group of villagers catch you up. They are somewhat the worse for drink. The local meddler wine is pretty potent. They take up positions, one to either side of you, and then talk as if you weren't there at all. A stranger. Yes. We don't hold with strangers, nor me. Let's roll this one. You have no wish to offend Heaver by seriously hurting any of his people, but you will have to defend yourself against these two thugs. You lay aside your weapons, roll up your sleeves, and use the noble art of fisticuffs. Ah yes, the noble art of punching people in the head as hard as you can. What's more noble than that? Roll one die. So on a one or a two, they hit you, and you must reduce your stamina by one. Three or a four... Nothing happens. Five or a six, you have succeeded in landing a blow, and you need to hit them three times, um, which will make them run away. 
So being punched in the head once a piece, that they can weather perfectly happily, but as soon as you punch them in the head a third time, they will think better of it. So education through pugilism. I guess I'm not going to do this on mic. I will pause the recording as I'm going to roll one die several times. I have beaten up the villagers. Uh, I needn't have bothered pausing the recording. It was incredibly quick. Uh, I just rolled a die three times and got two fives and a six. That's their hides thoroughly tanned. That's quite a nice little mini game. Breaks up the uh, the usual fighting rules a bit. You know, it's very very simple. Makes a pleasant little change. It is evening when you reach the gates. Two dwarf guards ask your business, then show you inside to a sparsely furnished waiting room. One of them returns before long. My lord Haver is dining, he says, and asks whether you will join him. Will you accept and go straight away, or ask to be shown to your room first? I will accept. Usually very sensitive to insult the upper classes in my limited experience. You enter the feast room. Seated at the table is a strange assortment of creatures. Humans rub shoulders with elves. Birdmen are talking with dwarf warriors. There's even a friendly giant tucking into half a roasted ox. But over all of them, lord of his own domain, sits Heaver, to whom anger and merriment are equally pleasing. You are led to the high table where the place of honour at Heaver's right hand has been kept free for you. You are welcome, cousin, booms Heaver, for so I think I may address you. Be seated and forget your tiresome journey for the hours that pass here. Why don't I have your things taken up to your room? So there is a picture of Heaver who seems like a big bearded jolly man and there's various slightly grotesque individuals enjoying a feast. It's another bit of very decent Russ Nicholson artwork, I have to say. Very characterful, very medieval. I like the idea that he rules over a surprisingly multicultural nation. Not enough of that sort of thing in fantasy novels. Makes a change from the sort of biological essentialism that often tends to pervade. Do we want to let Heaver nick our stuff? I mean, I guess he's going to be quick to take offence, as I suggested earlier, being immensely posh. So I guess I will allow them to take my stuff away. The meal is well in progress. Restore four stamina points. Well, that gets me back to my maximum of 22. But a guard returns with worrying news. He was attacked by some pygmy orcs inside your room and knocked unconscious. When he came to, your helmet had gone, and there was no sign of the thieves. You immediately ask to be directed to your room while Heaver is busy organising a search party. When you get there, you soon find a rope dangling out of the window to the ground below which is outside the castle walls. Will you grab your belongings and go alone down the rope in pursuit of the thieves or wait for Heaver? Um, I'm going to go straight on. I mean, down that rope, because I feel like I can handle some tiny orcs. And also, I feel like I need to be a man of action rather than the man of considered reflection. So, yeah, straight on we go while the trail is still warm. It is difficult for you to pick up the trail of the thieves during the night time, even with the moon out. But some progress is made. By morning, you are on the margins of Pikestaff Plain, heading north. 
and the tall grass of the plain makes it easy to track the thieves. The bent and crushed stems are clearly visible. Pursuing orcs across a plain. Um, again, I can't help but feel a Lord of the Rings reference in the offing. Soon the thieves themselves come into view, heads and shoulders bobbing above the grass. Do you have companions? I do not. Why, you wonder, have the thieves made it so easy for you to follow them? The rope, the easy trail, it's as if they want you to catch them up. Do you have a bow and arrow? I do not. Otherwise, let's find out what happens. You are no match for the six pygmy orcs you have been following. They allow you to catch up, surround you, and then their vicious blades flash in the morning sun. Your adventure is over. Okay. Well, I think we've seen a, uh, a decent enough chunk of the story. I'm not entirely sure where I would go back to, to be honest. So yes, I think combination of having got to a decent way into the adventure and uh, encouraging back pain suggests I should probably leave the recording there. Oh, it's not doing anything radically different, but I did find that a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So I'm going to go away for you for a few seconds, for me for several days, and try and beat Masks of Mayhem, whereupon I'll be back with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. And I'm back. It's uh, a day or so later, and in fact 36 hours before I go under the knife for a serious back operation so hopefully i'll be editing this podcast together and putting it out in a pleasant haze of painkillers and with a left leg that's not constantly in agony with shooting pains these words will necessarily be a little bit rushed a little bit more incoherent because i'm desperate to get this podcast recorded before i do surgery because i can't imagine my brain is going to be any shape for providing analysis in the days that follow and i really do want to get something out uh this month and i want to uh attend to it while the game book is still moderately fresh in my mind so masks of mayhem then what do i think of it well i think on the whole i liked it a great deal i think there's some absolutely brilliant ideas in there now it doesn't quite stick the landing for reasons i'll go into later and that's a shame but in general, I had a really good time, and even the frustrating elements of the design, which are in some ways quite frustrating, didn't really detract from that too much. One of the first things I want to shout out is just how good the art is. I'm a big Russ Nicholson fan. I think he's one of the great sort of illustrators in fantasy art, and Masks of Mayhem is such a good showcase for his talents. There's lots of kind of grotesque creatures. There's a particularly horrible picture of a spider. There's a, a wonderfully monstrous looking hill giant. A beautifully, beautifully rendered eagle that captures that wonderful predatory quality that birds of prey have. The artwork is just first class throughout. So that's something that I really wanted to shout out as a highlight. And I also quite like the overall design of the plot which is pretty linear 
I would say. It's a series of set pieces and you're going to interact with the majority of those big set pieces on every playthrough. There's some smaller areas that are more optional, but the big stuff is going to be there each time you, you run through the book. Now that linear design is really strongly mitigated by having a lot of different approaches to those set pieces. The way you approach the early part of each of the encounters, that will often change how you experience the later part of the encounters in a way that feels very logical, very consequential. And that makes that part of replaying an absolute joy because you can see where you went wrong in many ways, but you can also see where it'd be interesting to explore and just to find out what happens when you make different choices early on in one of the big set pieces. There's a variety of places to explore as well. You've got like a lot of really good, well thought out wilderness settings, plains, forests, mountains, and there's a short dungeon right at the end. I think I marginally prefer it where all of the locations work towards a single theme rather than the kind of the colourful and varied journey, but that's purely my own aesthetic preferences. I really like books like Island of the Lizard King because the whole book is trying to sell you on this lost world of adventure setting and I really enjoy that but I do also like the varied and colourful journeys as well. And it's particularly instructive to think about this book in terms of the previous book having been a science fiction setting. One of the advantages of doing a more classic fighting fantasy book is that I think most people have a sort of shared idea of what a fantasy gaming world looks like that sort of mixture of you know Tolkien, Michael Moorcock, Arthurian legends, Robin Hood, other folklore along with Dungeons and Dragons and, and video games and all of these things sort of amalgamate together to provide a pseudo-medieval backdrop that we can conjure quite easily. And that means the world building just doesn't have to do quite as much work as it does in a science fiction novel. In a science fiction adventure game book, you've got to describe the tech level, you've got to describe the social organisation, you've got to describe all of the different ways in which technology influences the story. Whereas with a classic fighting fantasy novel, you know that there's going to be orcs, you know there's going to be goblins, you know there's going to be magic, there's probably going to be some traps. So much of that world building is just implicit in the cultural context in which the story is being evoked. And I think from a personal point of view... I really like that nebulous fantasy setting because I grew up with Dungeons and Dragons. There's a reason why the game I've just finished writing, Dungeon and Dagger, is a kind of homage to Dungeons and Dragons. I love that sort of cod medieval world. And here there is a very strong sense that the world building is more than usually in hock to Tolkien, but it's not in a bad way. He gets that this is someone who casts an enormous shadow, and so he's having fun with it. So we get uh, we get an army of the dead, we get the Watcher in the water, we get a Barrow White. We even get a bit where we're chasing some orcs across grasslands that feels very much like the bit in Lord of the Rings where Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli pursue the orcs across some grasslands but they're all subtly recontextualized and presented in a way that doesn't feel lazy doesn't feel as though the author has 
simply stolen elements. It's more that the author's taken elements that are familiar and shown them to us in a way that enables us to engage with them, which is, of course, the thing that you can't do in a novel. I will say also that the world he's created feels extremely hostile. It feels like a dangerous place on almost every level. And I think that's a really important part of conjuring these kind of worlds because they can end up feeling oddly cosy to us. Because we have these prior expectations about wizards with pointy hats and staffs and dragons sitting on treasure hordes, that can hide the fact that these worlds are savage and barbaric. But in Masks of Mayhem, there is no danger of forgetting that not only the inhabitants of this world, but the world itself is this incredibly hostile place. There's a reasonably complex set piece around a river where you don't even come across any monsters. It's just you versus the elements. And me being not a natural outdoorsman in many ways, I very nearly died just through sheer incompetence. There's a section where you have to try and escape a wildfire. And again, there's no monsters there, or occasionally you might meet one. But that section gives you that sense of being in a hostile world far from any sort of help. The wilderness is more than just an empty space in which monsters wander around. It's a place with its own dangers as well. And one of the things that design does very well to evoke this is to play around with your provisions and your stamina a lot. The authors noticed that if you take, for instance, a potion of stamina and you've got your 10 provisions you actually got access to a very large amount of stamina, which means that you can create drama by messing around with people's provisions. It becomes another resource you can deplete to make the player feel, not afraid exactly, but feel that the world is consequential and dangerous. And I really like that. I really think that a lot of the best standard fighting fantasy game books don't necessarily try and ignore the fact that you can end up with huge quantities of stamina, but find ways of incorporating that into the narrative. So even though this is the most classic, basic fighting fantasy rules, there are still ways of approaching your game design within that that don't mitigate the design choices made by the original designers so much as turn them round and make them into a positive. And there's maybe a, a general design lesson there as well, which is that before you ditch a rule or a way of doing things or write something else, try and work out what are the situations in which this particular framing of the rules would actually be interesting, would actually be dramatic, would actually increase people's enjoyment of the game. And that's something I'm definitely going to bear in mind when I'm designing things in the future. The fact that the author's really on top of this is exemplified by the fact that he remembers to specify when he gives you a magic sword that it will take you over your starting skill. Long-time fighting fantasy fans know that the game rules say that you can't ever go over your starting skill, but a lot of the actual books are written as though you can go over your starting skill, and that there's this sort of disconnect there. The author's noticed that disconnect, and he's specifically addressed it, which is really, really cool. 
In terms of how the decision-making is handled, this is an area in which I think Masks of Mayhem is really strong because the decisions that you're presented with all feel extremely natural. They all feel as though they have some kind of weight to them. There are the odd left, right, up, down kind of binary decisions, but for most of the situations you're presented with, you're given not just an either-or choice, you're given three or even four choices. And I think that's sort of the sweet spot. I think two is often too few, and five is certainly too many, but three to four feels like the ideal number of choices to make the player feel as though they're not being railroaded, they are being given freedom, but also not making them feel as though they're having to pick one right answer from a very long list and effectively just rolling the dice to find out what happens next, which is, I think, the problem you run into if you have too many choices, is that that can end up, even though it seems to offer you more freedom, it can actually end up feeling more random, particularly if they all seem equally reasonable. Three reasonable options feels like a difficult decision. Six reasonable options feels like a shot in the dark. And there's a real art to presenting the player with multiple realistic options. And I've gone on record as saying it's absolutely fine to hide a binary choice behind two sensible options and one that's obviously the wrong option because the players had to engage with the decisions available in order to come to that decision. And this ties into some of the really great fight design, which I also wanted to talk about. Now, we've talked about combat tricks ad nauseam on this podcast, but what the author's doing in Masks of Mayhem is playing with time in combat in a really interesting way. There's a lot of situations where you will fight a monster under one set of rules for a number of rounds, and then once that's elapsed, if you haven't already won, some new rule will come into play, the fight will get easier or more difficult. And these are often based on things that are happening around you. So there's a brilliant fight with some pygmy orcs where it initially starts as you and some friends fighting against a group of orcs. And over time, the orcs start whittling down the number of people in your party. So you suddenly have to face more orcs. And that feels like an incredibly natural way for a fight to progress. It's not really doing anything new in terms of iterating on the combat system, but it is using the passage of time as a feature of the fight. And I think that's really clever and really makes some of those fights just come alive, even though all you're actually having is two standard combat scenes. This book really does make great use of time. There's a lovely section with a castle where you're given the option of going upstairs immediately or going and eating in the hall And if you go and eat in the hall, you will later find that the orc assassins have done their work. If you go to your room immediately, you will surprise the orc assassins in the middle of their work. And both of these different results just feeds very naturally into the story. That sort of attention to detail is really cool. And I think dealing with time in adventure game books is actually really difficult. And to see it done well is a real treat. There are some slightly weird bits where the geography of the world changes slightly based on whether you have an item or not. That feels strange and breaks immersion a little bit, but it's only a very occasional thing and weighed against the really advanced design of the areas in terms of how you approach them temporarily. I don't really have a huge problem with it. Now, the plot 
is very simple. It's your classic go from A to B to deal with the terrible menace. But there are some lovely hints along the way that all is maybe not quite what it might seem. And you could be facing a menace that's more complicated than just an evil sorceress in her mountain lair. That's really a great idea. And it's unfortunate that I don't think it's explored to maybe the extent that it needs to be explored. What I mean to say is that in order to beat the book, you have to solve the mystery of who the sorceress's accomplice is. And although there are some nice contextual clues along the way that will help you, it's not quite given as much prominence as I think it needs in order to make that final reveal matter. And that brings us on to some of the more problematic elements of the book. One of those problematic elements is that the book is really, really hard. And in particular, although it's pretty easy to spot that there is someone else involved, working out who that someone else is, is very hard because there's just not quite enough contextual clues been given. And even if you work out who that someone else is, there's another clue you have to unravel in order to locate the correct section to turn to as a result of knowing who that person is. So you can come up with a situation, as I did, at the end of the adventure, where you're pretty sure you know who the second person involved in the plot is, but you have no idea how to translate that knowledge into actually winning the game. And I eventually had to go and look up a walkthrough, and I was very, very cross when I looked it up to find out that A, I was right, and B, I really didn't see how the so-called clue you were supposed to use to divine the correct paragraph to turn to, I could not see how you were supposed to spot that. It seemed to me as though the link between the section number and the clues you were presented with you were supposed to solve was tenuous at best. And this is a book that's very keen to prevent you from cheating, quote unquote. There's a lot of bits where you need to find a hidden paragraph in order to proceed, and some of them are more complicated than just simply finding an item which has a two to three digit number scroll on the side, which is the accepted way of doing these things. Here is a key that someone, for reasons that are obscure, has written 112 on. No, here is a key where someone has, for reasons that are even more obscure, written a mysterious limerick on from which you're supposed to divine the number 112 or deduce the number 112. There's one unbelievably frustrating bit where you have to find two items to progress and uh, sort of calculate numbers based on both of them to find a hidden paragraph. If you don't have either of these items, you can simply proceed with your adventure and you will run into problems later on. If you have the items, you will be taken to a special secret location where you will be asked for another different secret paragraph. And if you don't have that one on top of the one you've already calculated, your adventure will simply end. So that's doubly frustrating, because if you know nothing, you get to carry on. The penalty for doing half the difficult thing is worse than 
the penalty for doing none of the difficult things, which I think is, frankly, insane design. It doesn't help that the game is unbelievably deadly, even if you're ignoring these abstruse and obscure puzzles. There's loads and loads of bits where taking the wrong turn, as I did in the playthrough, will just straight up kill you. I mean, there are a lot. Now, I don't actually mind that as a design choice. I quite like it when you just turn to a paragraph and you straight up die, because I'm usually playing with the sausagey finger bookmark rule, and I can just have a little sort of smirk to myself about the deadliness of of it all and just go back to the place where I was and continue with my adventure down another path. This is one of those books where I think you need more sausagey finger bookmarks than I possess sausagey appendages to cram into the pages. So it probably does err on the side of murderous. But that is definitely a secondary concern to its insistence that on no account should you be allowed to cheat your way to any kind of positive ending. And uh, yeah, there's just too many convoluted leaps of logic that you're required to do for me i mean this is always a personal view and it's something that i definitely thought about when i was designing my own book the house of the unquiet dead i deliberately designed it so that you could go straight from the opening all the way to the final encounter ignoring all of the possibilities presented to you and the final encounter if he did that would be stupidly hard because it was balanced to try and encourage people not to do that but you could do that. And if you wanted to just cheat and say you beat the final boss, you could do that. And you would, that would get you to one of the positive endings. It would be the worst good ending, but you could still say you finished it. That's the way I would prefer to look at it. I think getting obsessed with preventing cheating, that's just making your design worse for everyone to try and defeat an entirely hypothetical bad player. Now, I did include a couple of situations where you did need to have access to particular secret paragraphs in order to proceed, but only one of them was actually required to get the best ending of the game. So I felt that was a sort of decent balance. But I think in future books, I'm going to try and remove the whole notion of cheating players from my design principles. I'm going to try and design for the player who's playing in good faith, not the player who's playing in bad faith. Because at the end of the day, it's not up to me how anyone approaches the game book I've designed. It's up to them. And you should treat people as able to make that decision for themselves rather than trying to come up with convoluted reasons to stop them making that decision for themselves. If someone enjoys cheating at adventure game books, I think it's a very irritating thing to do to try and stop their fun by stopping everyone else's fun as well. There's an Irish stand-up comedian called Dara O'Brien who once said of video games that you unlocked 100% of the video game when you handed over money for the video game. And I think that is a good mindset to think about when you're designing things. And Masks of Mayhem is mean-spirited to the point at which it really does start to impede the enjoyment of what is otherwise a really enjoyable, fun game with some really imaginative elements to it. Now, I don't want to finish on a downer, uh, although I think the very high difficulty is a significant downer. I want to finish on a positive, so I want to call out the fact that there's some really nice little mini-games that have been included as well as um, some quite complicated combat structures. There's a great little game where you're chasing a saber-toothed tiger through a 
forest uh, with some dogs and it's all done by just rolling on little tables it's not a complicated little game but you've got the nice little map drawn beautifully by Russ Nicholson and I think it's often not such a good plan to have entire additional games hidden inside your existing game but this is one example where it works really really well there is inevitably one square that if you randomly step on it you will instantly die but it's a biggish map that's actually not going to come up very often so actually i think that's a an enjoyable little murderous easter egg if you will in summary then i was very happy to be back to the old school list of old school design aesthetics for masks of mayhem i liked so many elements of the book and the way in which it's been put together and it's just a real shame that the punishing difficulty is so mean-spirited as to kind of take the shine off i think i am predisposed towards enjoying this kind of tolkien inflected bargain basement dungeons and dragons influenced fantasy gaming it's just something i really enjoy so that's all from me hopefully by the time you're listening to this episode i will have been surgically operated on and will no longer be in tremendous amounts of pain thank you very much for listening to this slightly more incoherent episode hopefully the next episode will be more coherent and i won't be on large amounts of painkillers i'll just be able to actually work on projects like a normal person and that will be delightful if you'd like to get in contact with me you can do so by emailing hjdoomretrofun or one word at gmail.com next episode i'm hoping all things being equal will be a bonus episode in which uh, thanks to a recommendation from one of my patrons we will be playing what is often considered to be the single greatest adventure game book ever written So I do hope very, very much you will be able to join me for that. Until then, thanks once again and take care. I'll see you soon.